moaning, groaning, and sighing. I'm going to use all of them together. I'm going to define them this way as semi-involuntary sounds and expulsions of air that come out from deep inside of us. They are expressions in sound rather than in word of grief or of pain or of anguish and frustration, of sadness, perhaps of guilt, as we saw in Psalm 38, of disappointment, loneliness, sickness, and lament. There's a groaning of the body. And I don't know when the last time you experienced the groaning of the body is, but probably all of us have experienced that at some point. Perhaps it was a stomach virus that you had the last time. That's a groan. Perhaps it was a high fever that you had and you were groaning from that. And as we get older, sometimes all it takes is to try and stand up from a sitting position and we find ourselves sighing and groaning or laying in bed with a hurt back and we find ourselves moaning and groaning. There is physical moaning and groaning. And then there is the moaning and the groaning of the soul. And we're confronted in this psalm very early on with the phrase that I tried to pause a little bit on as I read it just a few moments ago, a phrase that almost sounds heretical when we hear it read. And it is that phrase that says, when I remember God, I moan. Now, one might think it would be theologically proper to say, when I remember God, I am comforted. I'm praising but when I remember God, I moan. Our psalmist here in this psalm at some point, and remember, by the way, I'm saying at some point, remember, by the way, that psalms compress time. So what did it take? Two or three minutes to read through this psalm. Remember that this represents an extended period of time for the psalmist, not just a real quick problem and a real quick resolution. But at some point in time, our psalmist has lost his voice, and he says, I am so troubled that I cannot speak. The words wouldn't be pronounced by one who is a psalmist. One who writes poetry could find no words, and it is then that we moan. And it is a faith-struggling moan that comes out of us. Let's consider this then firstly. Firstly, we want to consider the reality of the moan. The simple observational fact or experiential fact that should be enough to convince us of the reality of moaning is that all of us do it. All of us do it, will do it, and have done it in the past. But I'd like to address for just a moment a question that may be it may be lurking somewhere deep down inside of us, and, and, and you might not yet have triggered the question, but here's the question. Is moaning wrong? Is moaning evidence of a lack of faith 
or at least a lack of faith as, as not being applied, as faith not being applied to this particular moaning problem, right? Each moan is attached to something in particular. Is that a lack of faith? Is groaning itself, whether that groaning be voluntary or involuntary, an act of disobedience that is akin, for example, to Israel's grumbling in the wilderness. Hear the testimony of the saints. Most of these are from the Psalms, not all of these. I begin with the testimony of David, Psalm 6. I am weary with my moaning, Psalm 31. My life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. Psalm 38, I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Psalm 55, I am restless in my complaint and I moan. Moses in Psalm 90, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. And hear the Lord speaking through Jeremiah. My heart moans for Moab like a flute. And my heart moans like a flute for the man of Kir Hereseth. I think, and this is going to be said very quickly and very briefly, I think that we can all have a common understanding that it is possible and it takes place that we can moan and groan inappropriately. That we can moan and groan too much that we can moan and groan at something that really doesn't deserve that level of response that's actually not that bad, that we can moan and groan in a way that is hopeless or in a way that is helpless. I was struck by the line in the hymn that we sang, the last hymn that we sang, to help me check the rising doubt, the rebel sigh. There is such a thing as that, the rebel sigh, the rebel moan, or the faithless moan and groan. With that acknowledgement, and I acknowledge that that is the case, but I'm not going to speak any more about it today. I acknowledge that moaning and groaning can be done inappropriately and wrong. But with that acknowledgement, the testimony of Scripture is that faithful saints sometimes lose their voice. And all they can do is moan and groan before the Lord, to the Lord. The sadness and the trouble of this world is sometimes literally unspeakable. There are no words to express the pain that is in the world. And that is why when we find ourselves in situations, a tragic situation, a, 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 an awful loss to a friend, and we're trying to help them, or we're trying to understand it ourselves, we, we kind of look at each other and we say, what do you say? 
What do you say to someone in a situation like that? We would like to comfort them, we would like to console them, be it our children or be it a friend in a loss or be it ourselves, but we end up saying, I don't know what to say. And that is sometimes exactly where Scripture wants to take us, to the point where there are no words and all that is left is this sound or breath that emanates from us. We live in a world of trouble, and so did the psalmist who writes this. Verse 2, in the day of my trouble. Verse 4, I am so troubled. So here's that first point, simply this. Moaning and groaning is real, and it is biblically exemplified and appropriate in the life of faithful saints who live in a sad world. And next. The next step in our psalm is the one that you would expect it to be. When you are in trouble, you want out of trouble. When you find yourself, when we find ourselves moaning, we want it to stop. We want that to come to an end. If groaning comes from discomfort, then what we want is comfort. And more than just wanting comfort, all of us actually need that. We all need the toughest of you here the most faithful of you sitting in this room, we all need consolation and comfort and compassion from the Lord. And the psalmist, as he begins to seek that, does what we would expect a psalmist to do. He follows the pattern that we have come to see now in any number of psalms, which is to say, he turns to the Lord and seeks that from the Lord. Help from Him. The great thing, though, and this isn't a great thing for the psalmist, but it's a great thing because it reflects the common experience of humanity, is that we get to see in Psalm 77 not only the resolution that the Lord eventually brings him to, but we, in the meantime, get to see that not all of the things that he sought to do to bring comfort, good things, were in fact successful. We get to see attempts made that didn't turn out to result in any comfort that was given. So let, let me just go through a couple of those. He begins his, uh, I'll call it a get out of trouble effort, a stop moaning effort, a bring some relief to this pain effort. In verse 1, with loud cries to God, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and He will hear me. These are not silent prayers. They are not whispered prayers. They are loud cries to God. And if that seems somewhat odd to you, you think, well, you know, do you have to shout for God to hear you? 
Couldn't God hear if you prayed silently? Of course, if it seems odd to you, look at the verse on the front of your bulletin. In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death, and He was heard because of His reverence. If you have a problem with loud cries that come from incredibly difficult situations in our lives, look at Jesus. It is exactly what He did. Don't be afraid to use what God has given to you to express what's going on inside of your heart and inside of your soul. He has given you a voice. You do not have to pray quietly. Now, I'm talking here about your private prayer. I'm not talking about right now, and I'm not talking about when there's 10 people around. But when you are in private prayer, you are allowed to take that voice of yours and use it. You are allowed to express the pain, the anguish, the depth of your need by an increase in volume before the Lord. You are allowed to use the hands that He has given you and lift them up. Whether in praise or in need to Him, you can take your head and you can bow it down or you can lift it up. You can take your knees and you can bend them before the Lord. You can get on your face and be prostrate before the Lord. You can use what God has given to you to express the need. You are a body-soul individual. You are using both when you come to God. So he prays with loud cries, but it's not as if he does that one time. He doesn't give us the impression that I did that one time, it didn't work, and so I went on to the next thing. But rather, what he says in verse 2 is that this was something that he did day and night. And in verse 2, he says he did it without wearying, which is to say he was a persistent intercessor. He kept coming to God in this way, trying to find relief. Don't be afraid to be persistent with God. But these persistent, loud prayers were ineffective. There was still no comfort. There was still moaning. There was still in him a fainting spirit, and now he has become sleepless and restless. And then a little bit of a pivot takes place in his approach, and it goes from three into four and further parts into this psalm. He moves from prayer to meditation, contemplation. Okay, praying didn't work to bring me comfort. Persistent praying didn't work. Loud, consistent praying didn't work. And let me now consider, let me contemplate, let me remember the things of God. And his meditation, his remembering, begins, verse 6, let me remember my song in the night. It begins with an attempt to draw up an old memory, a memory from a happier time, a song that used to be sung perhaps by himself or perhaps in the company of other people. Maybe it was Psalm 1, maybe it was a song of Moses or any of the other song, songs that are written in Scripture. But I remember when I used to sing that at night, maybe with others who were gathered around before bedtime, it was a fire, and we used to sing this song, this hymn to God. Maybe a song will help me, but it brings no comfort. 
It is the same old song. But now, as it is sung, it has a completely different meaning to it. Those were days when the context was good, when the people were good, when there were blessings to be found, and this seemed like a great song to sing. But now, all singing this song does is reminds me that that's not my present experience. Now, it's an irritant, the very thing that used to bring me comfort. And it provokes, then, this series of incredibly poignant questions that we have in verses 7 through 9. And I want to read them again just so you can hear how strong these questions are. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has His steadfast love forever ceased? Are His promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has He in anger shut up His compassion? When you are groaning, when you are moaning, it feels just like that. They're raw questions. They're unpolished. They're reflecting the depth of the feelings of the heart of the psalmist who has experienced this incredible, whatever it is, the incredible grief that yields this type of questioning of God. I imagine them being said probably with a despairing moan that comes after them. And perhaps, if not a despairing moan, perhaps it is a groaning growl that is said at the end of those questions about God. All of these things, the praying, persistence, the songs, the thinking and reflecting on God, all of these are good. They are biblical. They are sincere efforts to remedy the trouble, to take care of the moaning. And they're exactly the kind of things that we might try ourselves because they're suggested for us for exactly that point in Scripture. And they're exactly the kind of things we might suggest to a friend who's experiencing trouble. Remember this song. Pray. Pray out loud. But they're unsuccessful. Sometimes our souls inexplicably refuse comfort. They want comfort. Somewhere in them, your soul wants comfort, but, verse 2, my soul refuses to be comforted. Inexplicable, but it goes on inside of us. We are in misery, and we feel inescapably camped with the stakes dug in deep in our misery and moaning. But even as questions rise, like the ones that I just read for us from verses 7 through 9, even there, even as we articulate those things, even as we actually make that complaint before God, something starts to happen within us. What starts to happen within us is as I say that out loud, as I say, have you forgotten compassion? Is this gone? Is steadfast love not a real thing? We begin to hear God answering back to us, speaking back to us from the pages of Scripture, from the acts of God in history, saying, 
Are you sure? Are, are you sure that I've forgotten those things? And we begin to realize the impossibility of God forgetting those things even as we are questioning Him about them in our own experience. We realize, as the psalmist realizes, that there is a God, and that that God is the God Most High, and that that God is our God, and who is like our God? Who is a God like our God? And all of that starts to happen in this process of questioning God and of going through these things. We realize that the Most High desires to grant to us comfort and consolation for Israel and for us. And so that then becomes that final pivot that we have in this psalm. Think for a moment about uh, time, present and future for a moment. For the psalmist, the present is awful, whatever it is, whatever the circumstances are. The present circumstances are awful for him. All they are causing him is groaning. And if you've been in that situation and somebody says to you, don't worry, everything's going to be better in the future, if someone tries to give you future hope at that time, what does it sound like? Nothing. It sounds like pie in the sky. When the present is bad, it is hard to look to the future and be hopeful because the present is clouding everything. And so when we find ourselves in a situation where the present and the future are such, they are closed off to us, there's a direction to go, and oddly enough, it's back. It is back into the past, and that is where the psalmist goes, verses 10 and 11. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember the wonders of old. Not just 10 years ago when I used to sing a song at night with my friends. I'm going further back than that. I'm going back further into the history of God. You and I and Asaph have a heritage, and the heritage is the heritage of faith and the heritage of how God has worked in this world. It is our story by faith, and we have a right, along with Asaph, to relive it enter back into it. And that is what he does in the passage that is before us and that is about to flow for the rest of this psalm. In the same way that you might sit around with your family or with your friends and relive a vacation. You might laugh about stories and incidents that took place over the vacation. Perhaps you pull out some photos or some videos and you kind of look back on those things and you relive it and you enjoy it once again. We are allowed to relive the works of God, the great I Am who is outside of time. And what Asaph relives in particular, and he relives them poetically, are two things. They are creation and redemption, and they're poetically fused together in the rest of this psalm. He goes back thinking about the creation of the world, how God brought order out of chaos, how He brings inhabitable land 
out of a sea of and stormy tumult and chaos. And then he thinks as well about the redemption of God's people. The images that, you're gonna, that I'm going to read just now are images that bring together the creation, the crossing of the Red Sea, and Sinai. And they kind of fuse them all together. And let me just read them for us again. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwinds. Your lightning lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. That's a long time ago. It's a long time ago for us. It was a long time ago for Asaph when he's reflecting on these things. Verse 15, you with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Now, he could just have pulled out Jacob and Joseph because they are patriarchs, fathers of the people. But I suspect that there is also another reason, and that is that Jacob and Joseph were men who knew what it was like to moan, even as God was guiding them through their lives. Asaph, along with them, is thinking the past, and this is a line from a commentator, Mays, thinking the past into the present. He's dwelling so much in the past that the dwelling on the past is eventually going to bleed. It's going to seep into his present circumstances. Jacob. Jacob, when he had lost Joseph, we read this, or when he thinks he has lost Joseph, all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. You see, to him, the world was over. There's no chance of seeing Joseph again. You and I know the story. Jacob, you're going to see Joseph again. Joy is coming. You're refusing to be comforted now, but joy is coming. Asaph says, my soul refuses to be comforted. And yet these moanings and these groanings are heard by God. The creative and redeeming work of our God eventually does comfort us, and it does bring renewal. Comfort is promised. We've talked about this in the structure of the service. It is promised to us in Jesus. And that is why Isaiah can look forward to it and say, comfort, comfort my people, speak tenderly or comfortably unto Jerusalem. Tell her the warfare's ended, the iniquities pardoned. It's all over. Isaiah can say, there will be a day when sorrows and sighings will flee. They will run away. And there can be a man named Simeon who is waiting with faith for the consolation of Israel, for the comforting of Israel. And when he gets Jesus in his arms, he goes, that's consolation. This is it. This child who will be king, this one, he is the consolation, the comfort 
of Israel. Paul can write of the comfort. And our Lord Jesus, the God-man who can identify with us, cries on his own behalf and on ours with a loud voice, and he was heard. This same Jesus, who is the comfort, the consolation of Israel, then sent the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, to us, because he knew the trouble, the pain, the groaning of this world. I won't leave you alone. I won't leave you without hope. I won't leave you without company. I will send you the Comforter. And listen to this, and hear it carefully. The Spirit of God takes up residence in our spirit. And the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with what? Groanings. Too deep for words. The Spirit identifies with the moaning, with the groaning of our spirit. And the Spirit of God Himself takes those up with groans to the throne room of grace. Jesus with loud cries. The Spirit with groanings too deep for words. Our God comforts. When you are sighing or groaning or moaning, God hears. He heard Israel when they were captive in Egypt, and he redeemed them. Psalm 56, 8 says this, you have kept count of my tossings, of my wanderings. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Has God not got every one of your groans and your sighs of faith marked? I got it. I hear it. I will bless in a way that you cannot presently imagine. I will comfort. God is not indifferent to your groaning. He will comfort. He will deliver. He will take you home. And that is where this psalm ends. It's kind of a little quiet verse that comes at the end. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. The good shepherd will take you home to a land, to a country, to a life where there is no sighing and there is no groaning and there is no mourning and there is no moaning. For now, as he takes you there, his footsteps are unseen. Verse 19, footsteps are unseen. It'll seem to you sometimes that there is no guide. There can be no purpose. There can be no direction. The footsteps are unseen. 
And yet the rains saw him, the storms saw him, they knew. Even while his people were simply led to the destination where he himself would take them. May the God of all comfort comfort your moaning soul.